Hi, everyone. Next week is the International Meeting for Autism Research, also known as IMFAR, and ASF will have their website full of updates. This includes not just updates of ASF-funded research, but projects funded by pretty much anyone involving diagnosis, intervention, dissemination, and implementation of autism science. So be prepared for lots of information next week about autism. In the meantime, two studies captured my attention this week. It may seem that sometimes this podcast is heavy with gene-environment interaction studies. That's because they're so understudied, and more research in this area is desperately needed. This week, I'm thrilled to report an important analysis that brings together epidemiologists and autism research, geneticists, and bioinformaticists. These bioinformaticists have the capacity to analyze data in ways that usually goes unconsidered. In this case, the bioinformaticists were represented by Marilyn Ritchie's group at Penn State University. They were interested in the association of copy number variation and exposure to high levels of air pollution during the first few years of life and an autism diagnosis. There's a study in California called CHARGE, Childhood Autism Risks from Genetics in the Environment, that has the data to perform this kind of analysis. It's based out of UC Davis, and it was launched in 2003. It now has thousands of participants. But this study focused on those with both an evaluation of copy number variation and an assessment of exposure to air pollution. So there were about 150 of these in people with autism and 150 in people without autism. Copy number variations are detected through blood collected at the time of recruitment. Air pollution exposure is a bit more tricky. They basically used air quality measurements through different exposure monitors and then estimated air pollution levels based on where that person lived. For example, levels of air pollution are usually highest closest to freeways where you would probably see the highest levels of different exposures. The state of California provides air quality measures and breaks it down into different types of air pollution and then allows the data to be accessed by scientists. All that is then needed is the actual address to then map on how far away people live from these different monitoring sites and then model their exposure. It's been used by several different epidemiological studies because it's virtually impossible to get thousands of people to wear air quality packs on their backs all day long every day. It has been done, but not with thousands of people. So when they analyzed the associations, they found in general across the two groups together, air pollution was not associated with increase in copy number variation. However, they did find that increased numbers of copy number variations plus elevated exposures to air pollution, specifically ozone, did in fact elevate risk, and this was higher than the risks of either alone. Interestingly, this study and other studies have looked at ozone. Interestingly, this study and other studies that have looked at ozone by itself haven't seen much in terms of increased risk of autism. Since copy number variations, though, are associated with increased risk, it made sense to kind of study them together. Although they didn't single out ozone, it actually looked at multiple constituents of air pollution. But the one that showed the interaction was CNVs and ozone. High levels of air pollutants like air particulate matter, 2.5, which is, for lack of a better word, very small bits of different crap that we breathe in, was associated with an increased autism risk independently. 
but HIOs was the only one that showed an interaction with copy number variations. Those with high ozone and those with high levels of copy number variations were the most likely to get an autism diagnosis. Those with low levels of both were not likely at all. I'm way oversimplifying the study because the authors broke down the copy number variations into different types, like duplications or deletions, but it was important to kind of get the overall effect across to you. A couple of three things about this. Previously, ozone has not been shown to be associated with autism risk, probably because genetics were not involved in the analysis. Second, there's no cause and effect here tested. In other words, do we know if the ozone caused copy number variations or the copy number variations made the child more susceptible to ozone? We don't. Both are possibilities. But third, and most importantly, the two work together. Yes, the study was kind of small, but that's only a reason to do this with more samples. And frankly, the lowering costs of genetic analyses make that more and more possible. So the other story I want to report to you is one that I found interesting, and of course, I hope you do too. A report out of Japan says that about 11% of adolescents with autism are addicted to the internet, about 12% of adolescents with ADHD, but if you have a dual diagnosis of autism and ADHD, the rate is 20%. Internet addiction, what really does that mean? So I did some research. And as it turns out, while it's not on the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disorders, it should be. And there are standardized measurements of internet addiction. One is the self-report. It's 20 questions that ask things like, how often are you on the internet longer than you intended? How often does your job suffer because you are on the internet? Are you secretive about your internet use? Do you try to hide it? Do you fantasize about being online when you're not online? And if you're not online, are you anxious and moody? These were actually based on criteria for gambling addiction. Well, it turns out about 6% of people worldwide are addicted to the internet. And in Asia, it's 4%. As an aside, there is also something called possible internet addiction, and the worldwide rate of that is like 20%. Frankly, I think that's an underestimate, but data is data. The effects of internet addiction in people with autism had been studied previously, and an increase was also found in that study in people with autism. However, the numbers in this study were higher than previous findings, and I'm not sure it has to do with just looking at kids in Japan versus other countries, but I can't rule that out either. So this is a real thing. These were high-functioning individuals, and while it doesn't distinguish between internet iPad use and computer iPad use, it probably doesn't matter. Clearly, when mental health professionals see adolescents with autism and or ADHD during routine psychiatric services, this should be on the table to deal with. Identifying problems associated with internet addiction in these populations could lead to future studies of the development of preventions and interventions of internet addiction, and hopefully those would improve social and academic functioning. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next week with lots of different Infar news.